Welcome to AI, Government and the Future, a podcast by Corner Alliance. We explore the intersection of artificial intelligence, government and the future with your host, Alan Pence. We work with government to create results. We ignite your agency's mission by helping you to design and implement high impact and innovative federal programs in AI, broadband, cybersecurity, public safety, and more. Being a government ally is at the core of all we do. Introducing your host, Alan Pence. Great. Today on the podcast, we're really privileged to have Mike Sexton. He is a leading expert at the intersection of AI, cybersecurity, and policy. He's a senior policy advisor for cyber and AI at Third Ways National Security Program. But he also has quite a big background in Middle Eastern affairs. His contributions include the influential anthology Cyber War and Cyber Peace in the Middle East. So we're excited to talk to you today, Mike. Uh, Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So just give us quick your main gig there at Third Way. Talk a little bit about Third Way and um, how it's involved in the AI issue. So Third Way is a small think tank in Washington, D.C. We're about 20 years old now, and we have a pretty milk toast lane ideologically. We are akin to the Center for American Progress, if people are familiar with it, in that we are explicitly political. We're explicit that we are center-left Democrats. So we are similar in that regard compared to most other think tanks that are explicitly nonpartisan. So our organizing principle, what distinguishes us from someplace like the Center for American Progress is just that we were founded by folks from the Clinton administration, from Al Gore's presidential campaign. So our kind of organizing philosophy is always keeping an eye on what the swing voter is saying or thinking. If they care about immigration or crime or something, you need to listen to them or you're not going to get elected. And always, it seems trite, but always looking for bipartisan agreement wherever it is possible, including with people that we disagree with. It seems like something that should go without saying, but it really does require reiterating and saying that that is part of our organizing principle. If we disagree with somebody on abortion 100%, but we can agree on sending aid to Ukraine, then sure, let's send aid to Ukraine. That's the way that we believe that democracy is supposed to work. Interesting. Well, I do know Third Way. I did a piece of trivia. I did apply for a job there back in the, I think, the early 2000s as a healthcare policy analyst. Did not get the job wisely. They did not employ me. So I moved on to other things, but it's a cool organization. And so just curious, like from the AI and I, I guess going to cyber a little bit as well, what kind of issues are you guys seeing come up that you think kind of hit that place that's more bipartisan on AI and cyber? So my kind of role is somewhat fortunately not necessarily at the the cutting edge of new research. I've got a lot of amazing colleagues at places like Stanford and Harvard doing just incredible groundbreaking research. More often our role, my role is taking their kind of work and their jargon and just explaining it in terms that you could expect a Senate staffer or a senator to understand without needing to take an entire class on AI. So right now, you know, that includes some informational resources on autonomous weapons. Autonomous weapons are an extremely complicated issue to regulate and discuss in a policy context. 
in in large part because they're very obscure. Almost no one can name the autonomous weapons that are out there. So I have this product forthcoming that is literally just pictures of 14 different autonomous weapons with some descriptions. Where are they from? When were they invented? Who has bought them? What do they look like in combat? People would be very surprised, you know, because if you're talking about regulating autonomous weapons with someone, it pretty much default goes to people's hypotheticals and imaginations and science fiction. And like, it's not bad to have that be part of the conversation, but it's hard to have the rubber hit the road unless someone is actually really well acquainted with the very specific tools that are already out there. Autonomous weapons, lethal autonomous weapons are not a new technology, you know, so it's important to kind of just like break out people's preconceptions to make sure that they're kind of fully read into this situation and can better understand what responsible policymaking can look like in that area. So like, I guess the AI element of an autonomous weapon is something that probably freaks people out, right? That it's somehow independently thinking or whatever, you know, however you want to phrase that. It's not just a dummy mind that's, you know, as terrible as that it can be. It has one function and just does it or does it or doesn't, right? And then AI can have like some kind of like, you know, these are always hard terms. Like it has some kind of agency, right? In some way, even though you've programmed it to do something, right? Like what have you seen in those 14 or others you know? I find it very fascinating and it's honestly something where I could just spend hours listening to like Yuval Noah Harari speak about this. When it comes to you end up not like talking about things like sentience, agency, emergent properties, the difference between um, intelligence versus consciousness. It seems like from the outside that you would think like, oh, all of these AI weapons, you know, they sound very scary. AGI is on the horizon. Like any day now, these could become sentient and they could turn on us or something. I do have definitely concerns about AGI, rogue AGI, the alignment problem going wrong and these tools possibly being uh, taken over by an AGI. That is a hypothetical that I think we need to consider. But when you actually look at the AI that is within the weapons currently, the kind of apocalyptic fear, it sort of evaporates, I think, because the AI is actually designed pretty tailor-made, like for a suicide drone. A suicide drone is not designed to look for a massive wedding and kill a ton of civilians. A suicide drone is designed to help you get past enemy lines and find a tank or a plane, like a legitimate military target. It incentivizes you to target things more in line with international law. Humanitarian organizations now criticize you if you use dumb bombs, if you don't use precision-guided munitions, because if you do have precision-guided munitions, if you can target the terrorists on the eighth floor of this apartment building and leave the other side of the building somehow unharmed, like under humanitarian law, to try to do that with the most like surgical strike possible, artificial intelligence plays a role in that. So people's intuitions of what this looks like are just not necessarily true. That is just like one manifestation of AI. We, we talk about AI like it's a really new thing. We neglect all the ways it's existed before. I wonder if these people who are concerned that like the AI in a suicide drone might somehow become sentient and decide that is about as like silly as imagining that the chess bot might for some reason just have an emergent property that it decides, no, actually, it would be really interesting if we let Gary Kasparov win. Like that emergent property, that idea that the AI is going to develop a willpower independent of the human being that designed it, 
it has not manifested in reality. So, so it's a good hypothetical to consider, right? I, the alignment problem is serious, but it's important as we do this to remember that there hasn't been a proof of concept here. Well, I also just pulling out of that, I thought it was a really good point is in some ways, maybe 20 years from now, using a weapon that doesn't have AI would be considered like a war crime, right? Because it would be less precise, right? No, absolutely. I mean, I don't want to get into specifics here, but in the war in like Gaza right now, there have been lots of criticisms about like the use of specific munitions, the use of AI targeting. But I think the crude weapons that get used, that get criticized, it's the older fashioned weapons. It's the newfangled stuff that allows you to target more precisely. The results of that will just, they end up being less worthy of criticism under international law. In Ukraine, for example, Lancet drones, all of these Russian suicide drones, like they are terrifying and they, I mean, have like a terrorist kind of impact by flying over civilian areas. But the nature of a Lancet drone is an, it's an extremely expensive drone. If you are Russia and you are going to be taking a Lancet drone and you want to use it to maximum effect to try to win the war against Ukraine is not in your interest at all to use your Lancet drone to strike a non-military target. Incentives get aligned a little bit better. The fog of war gets a little bit clearer. I hate to be almost like morbidly clinical about something so serious, but these things don't operate intuitively. Right. And I also think that there's often a case that I felt emerging where you say, okay, you can control AI to a certain extent through regulation, but there's all this like AI that's going to leak out the bottom through open source models and other. And so they're going to get to the bad guys, whoever they might be in some way. And the only way that you can contain that is to have better AI than they have to countermeasure, right? So in some ways, it's just a, like a really urgent issue to get better, more precise AI that can overcome these problems because we just can't put the genie back in the bottle. And, and as you say, AI has been in data and software, right? So, I mean, that's been a part of weapon systems for years now. I think, you know, fiction stuff like cyberpunk fiction can give us a good sort of window into what the future might look like. I think the the just a great rule of thumb when it comes to technology like AI or the Internet or anything is just it helps good people do good things. It helps good people do great things. It helps bad people do awful things, too. We have so many more categories of crime that like we could not have imagined 20 years ago. The explosion of sexually exploitative material, deepfake material, all of this, I'm afraid that it's not going to be something we'll ever eradicate. We'll do our best, I think, to sort of marginalize it, to try to avoid the training of AIs to create this kind of, you know, explicit, illegal material. But you can look at just the case of video games, for example, the ethics of creating a violent or, you know, explicit video game or something are kind of mixed. And there are studios in Japan that create sexually explicit video games that I'm not even going to get into details of what they what they did. It's just not appropriate, but it's completely normatively outrageous, inappropriate. I would like never want a child to even be aware that it exists. But I think that that kind of there is a market for this sort of CD stuff and it's going to come through in AI. It's going to come through in VR. It's coming through already in usage of the Internet. All these things, it's been a slow boil for us now. It doesn't seem like so unusual, the idea of CSAM being a serious problem online. 
because it's been a slow boil for us, right? But that would have been inconceivable in the 20th century. The, the problems that we have now with technology and, and the negative aspects of society that it has enabled. So it defines CSAM for our audience in case they don't know. Child sexual abuse material, this considered the politically correct term for child pornography, which may erroneously imply that the child is able to give consent, which they legally cannot. Yeah. And so I really worry about us kneecapping the big companies because we can regulate them, right? And we almost have like a nuclear weapon situation where to get enough GPUs to run the most advanced models, you need a concentrated set of power resources. You know, you're not going to be able to do that in some third world country usually. And they're all the big companies we know and probably, you know, China and here, maybe a little in Europe, but they're way behind. So it's really scary to me that we would kneecap their development because this stuff is going to be leaking out the bottom and we better make sure that our stuff can counteract it and at least keep ahead of the open source model that's going to be used by someone on a lower power machine. I mean, frankly, my point of view, I'm not too worried about the hypothetical of Congress just kneecapping, you know, let's say preventing chat GPT-5 from coming out or something. Because the situation that we have now where ChatGPT4 is available for anyone willing to pay $20 a month, you have open source models like Llama 2, Llama 3 coming out. When we worry about the emergent properties of highly advanced AI going wrong, if ChatGPT 3.5 were going to be used to create a chemical weapon, We'd have probably seen somebody use a chemical weapon that they built with ChatGPT 3.5 by now, or ChatGPT 4, or Llama 2. And so I'm cautious about how these tools might be abused, but I also want to kind of recognize, I believe that these companies do a, a good amount of QAQC, quality assurance, quality control of these, uh, of these tools before they release them. And I think it's manifested in the way that if you use it, even if the bot is breaking, it is usually conscientious of the fact that it is breaking. And if you try to break it again in the same way, it usually has learned by then. So, you know, honestly, fairly optimistic about it. I think that you're already seeing the payoffs really manifest. And the thing is, it's just going to become a sticky technology like smartphones, you know, before the advent of the iPhone, it'd be you couldn't have imagined everybody having an internet connection in their pocket. But now that's the assumption that everyone has. And because people begin to build their lives around the technology that exists. And so if I'm using, just speaking personally, you know, I use my GPT-4 mid-journey a ton. I use these for work. I use them for personal purposes. The idea of taking it away from me is like something that would be very bothersome. It would damage the economy in the same way that if you were to say, okay, you know, we're really worried about the effects of too much screen time. So, you know, smartphones are, are outlawed. <laughs> like, it would be a bad idea. <laughs> so... I've got the point of view that I want the development to continue going forward. I'm very optimistic about it, but I am clear headed about the negative impacts. And I think especially when it comes to issues like child sexual abuse material and deep fake pornography. I mean, these are really huge, huge issues that the industry has not sorted out very well. And there are going to have to be multiple avenues where we try to police this stuff. The government level, the platform level, the AI models themselves. There need to be social norms. And we're just in a bit of a wild west in that respect for the moment. 
Yeah, and not to mention CSAM and chemical weapons plans and all that stuff exists on the internet or the dark web or whatever already, right? So it's not like AI suddenly created these things, right? So it's something I think most regulators need to keep in mind that this reality has existed for a long time. So I guess the big fear though, right, is we get the singularity and the AGI becomes smarter than us and it's in weapons, right? So, or in robots. I mean, I think I think that's not happening anytime soon. I think the one fear I will credit more is the existential fear. And like none of the current regulation, I think, even knows what to do with that. Like it doesn't even get to that. So just curious, have you done any thinking about this, like from the weapons standpoint, when we have AGI and potentially it's doing stuff it could trick us, right? We don't know. We wouldn't be smart enough. I worry about that. I worry about knowledgeable AI is of psychology. I think that if you ask ChatGPT a question about something really politically difficult, like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or abortion or something, you can kind of see in the language that a human speaking in that way would have like a very deep psychological understanding of how people from either side would perceive their words. And it's extremely good at phrasing its response in a way that is kind of this lowest common denominator. And it's the psychology of that that I find interesting because persuasion is also this really malleable thing that I worry about how effective AI could be at persuading people, especially if it were to be a personalized artificial intelligence, which I think is the direction, you know, we're going in. Pi, AI, therapy, apps. It's a scary... Online tutors for everything, you know, for kids are going to grow up with that. Yeah, there's awesome potential and awesome risk. But when it comes to things like the kind of like apocalyptic Terminator scenario, the AI that you tell to make paper clips so it destroys the whole world to turn it into paper clips or something. A lot of that is kind of just contingent on things that are outside of the AI and humans control. You know, if I'm asking and, and I... <laughs> It was just literally experimenting with this to see if I could get GPT-4 to tell me how to procure the precursors for sarin gas. Oh, God. Don't tell me what you got. No, I mean, it wouldn't answer the question. <laughs> it, knew, it knew what the chemical I was asking for was. Even if it did know, these are capabilities that are kind of, unless you're the North Korean government or the Syrian government, you have access to foreign spies, criminals, whatnot. And AI just doesn't isn't going to have those connections built in. And AI is not going to be able to just snap its fingers and brainwash whoever controls the nuclear codes. So like, you know, these kinds of breaks exist along the way. I'm not naive. I worry about like the, when it comes to autonomous weapons, they may be hackable, right? That's something scary. But current weapons would be hackable. I mean, even without AI, right? Right. Current weapons are hackable. And, you know, it's important to remember when we talk about autonomous weapons, it's not a robot with that makes its own decisions walking around without a human supervisor. All these autonomous weapons have human supervision built in. The question is, is the human required to supervise it? Do they need to decide when it fires? Would it ever fire without the human? That's an example for like sentry systems at the North Korean border. South Korea has a lot of fully automated machine guns that will, if someone is approaching from the North Korean side, it'll set off an alarm first and alert everybody. 
and then they'll start firing rubber bullets and they'll start firing real bullets. It doesn't require a human to say, okay, fire real bullets now, but you can see there are multiple breaks along the way. A human can come in and say, oh no, that was a mistake. It alarms them, right? But you can see that it wouldn't work properly if you required the human to be 100% authorizing every single individual strike. It would reduce the operational advantage of having that. So that way you can have fewer people guarding this border 24-7. So talk to me a little bit about, you do a lot in the Middle East as well. So talk to me about the, how this AI issue is playing out in the Middle East. I think it's something that has the attention of governments and of people in power. I think the, the Middle East is somewhere that has leapfrogged technologically a lot. You know, whereas in the United States, we went from no internet to dial-in modem to first cell phone to your smartphone and stuff. In a lot of the Middle East, it's been like nothing to smartphone. Uh, and then the smartphone, you tether it to your laptop. A lot of people don't even have internet connections in their homes. They just have the mobile network. And so they kind of like leapfrog that technology. So I think there is huge potential that AI could be adapt adopted very quickly, very widespread and put to incredible use because I think there's just like I, I so many amazing possibilities for education. I think that like AI educational tools in the hands of children have like so much potential if we're able to do it in a way that we all trust is safe. Right. So the Emirates is like far and away among the Arab world, I think, been the most forward thinking on this with their Falcon AI model. They have been really proactive about this. And I think other Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar are going to kind of be following their lead. But, you know, at the same time, I'm not 100 percent sure what this looks like five or 10 years down the road. Is the Emirates going to have one giant government AI that's super powerful that other people can use as a closed source model to build upon? Or will they have a diverse network of open source AI models that have been customized by all these different businesses? Which way is it going to look? I have no idea. How would they approach, like, I, I don't know too much about the approach to the internet. Is it relatively open or is it, I guess it depends on the country to some extent. Yeah, I mean, in, in the Middle East, can't really go by like Arab country by Arab country and necessarily say for each one, I don't want to, I really don't want to paint with a, with too broad a brush here. But countries like Qatar, the Emirates, Turkey, these are socially conservative places, websites that are like pornographic, uh, hookup apps are generally blocked. Well, I could imagine things like, like our AI is highly trained to not misgender someone or talk about, you know, I, I think it's pretty up to date with progressive values. So like I can imagine in the Middle East, something like chat GPT-4 might be like considered complete blasphemy or something, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's important cultural considerations to consider here, too. I talk to people a lot about this as someone who is not Arab, it's Jewish, actually, but who's worked with Arabs for a lot and a long time. Like Arab society is very conservative when it comes to sexuality. That's not like an, a secret to anybody, but it means that things like if a chat GPT-4 in the United States may think that it's fine and normal to like discuss the person's sexuality or something, gay or straight, like, whereas in the Middle East, whether you are gay or straight, that kind of thing is just considered like it's not discussed in polite conversation, right? People assume that it is like a strictly discriminatory thing and it is really not. It is like a whole cultural modesty thing that you just do not talk about sex with anybody but your significant other no one else wants to hear about it 
And so you do need to have kind of culturally attuned AI to be mindful of that. Or else, you know, you could have a model that's totally innocuous in one place, but just really rubs people the wrong way the other. And it strikes me that it'll probably follow somewhat of the model of the internet where you have like maybe China creates this great firewall. And as I understand it, exports, you know, some of that tech to other countries, right? So you, they'll probably create, you know, you'll have people creating the conservative Muslim model or something and like moving it around to different countries. So it'll be interesting that, and those will probably be built off of open source models from like Meta or something, you know, for Lambda or things like that. But I mean, all these things, it just, it all depends on local cultural values that I built in the United States may conceive of, you know, individual success and making your own thing independently, charting your own path is the ideal. Whereas like to another, bringing glory to your family and making sure that you carry on traditions may be the ultimate thing. Both of those I think are totally valid. And uh, it's just important to be conscientious as we sort of travel across languages, cultures, regions, that we don't know what to expect, what things may upset somebody else. Um, and AI needs to be attuned to that to be successful. But to your point, I think that one of the huge benefits for particularly developing or non-Western or, you know, whatever you want to use, the benefits is going to be you just have the ability to access knowledge. And, you know, as we create these tutors, to learn, you could basically get an MIT level education sitting in Cameron if you have access to the right tools, right? So strikes me, it like takes that promise of the internet to like another level that it's like, that's the kind of thing we heard about in the nineties and two, early two thousands, like internet democratizes all of this, but in some ways it does, some ways it doesn't, it's hard to access all the info. It's hard to show that you've done it, but I do think that AI actually makes that a reality. One of my favorite things for using AI for is just when I think of subjects in college that I didn't do so well in, like my uh, humanities, like philosophy stuff. You know, I learned about Chomsky normal form and like automata theory and the theoretical computer science class. And the TAs were not perfect. They often couldn't answer my questions. I would often go to TAs with the problem set that the professor wrote and the TA would not be able to figure it out. Uh, that's an incredibly, it basically sets up someone like me who's doing their best to fail, right? But within AI, if an AI is ne like, it doesn't have office hours, it's 24 seven. I can ask it about Chomsky normal form every day. If the textbook is confusing for me, I don't need the textbook even anymore. So like you could have, I mean, autodidact who are like, you know, Leonardo da Vinci is just so much potential for how this could be used to just enrich people's curiosity. It's so much more liberating than their constraints when it comes to Google search. If I'm trying to Google the song that goes da, 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 or whatever, like an AI, like a chatbot is actually better at connecting those dots than Google is. I really identify with your thing about the Chomsky, right? Because like, normally I would say like, there's no way I'm going to read a Chomsky book. It's like so interminable and dense and, but like with a chatbot, you could actually extract, even if you're not like there to go plotting through this book, you could extract a lot of the information from that book over time, right? And in a way that suits your, you know, however you learn, right? So it seems like this infinitely adjustable thing that's going to help people 
access new information that they've never been able to before because it's hidden in long books with boring titles, right? And that's an esoteric thing, but you know, it's, I mean, if you want to ask it about like, what is the difference between a derivative and an integral? That's like a demo I love to show to people because I feel like a lot of people aren't very good at calculus. To me, I think it's just because they haven't had like a teacher to kind of walk them through the concepts. Like to me, at least it's very intuitive. If you just have the time for someone to help you build that intuition, it's a training thing. It's kind of like learning an instrument. And the more people have the ability to have, the more available a sign kind of handholding to, to walk you through from zero to 100% understanding of this subject. I mean, it's a revolutionary gift. I'm so, it, I, I think it's so exciting to be alive at this time. Yeah, it's so cool. I, I totally agree with you there. Roaring 20s. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's the new roaring 20s. That's right. Yeah. Uh, hopefully it's not preceded by uh, World War III, though, so <laughs> we'll skip that part of history, right? But we're at time, but really interesting, Mike. I love this stuff and really loved pulling out the thread on how these different cultures are going to interact. I think that's something we haven't really talked that much about on the pod before. So, But appreciate your time and enjoy your TV interviews later today. Thank you so much. Hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks. AI, Government and the Future is brought to you by Corner Alliance. To find out more about Corner Alliance and how we work with government to create results, visit our website at corneralliance.com and then make sure to search for AI Government Future in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found and click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Corner Alliance, Thanks for listening.